everybody, and uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the second panel of the day uh, here at TBRCon 2021. Uh, before we get kind of get into it, you know, again, while this is a completely free convention, uh, we do have three amazing charities. We're raising donations for uh, Shelter, No Kid Hungry, and World Wildlife Fund. Uh, there are links provided below uh, the video. But if you just, you know, if they decide to be temperamental at all, you can always go to fanfight.com and click on the TBRCon 21 link at the top of the page. Any and all donations are appreciated. Uh, so we are here to talk about the future of fantasy. Um, and while I would love to introduce all my panelists, I actually want them to introduce themselves because they'll do a way better job. Uh, so we'll start with Steve. Uh, I appear to be the old fart in this panel, so that, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, even though we're going to be talking about the future of fantasy, so that's, it, it feels a bit odd. Anyways, uh, I'm Stephen Erickson, um, uh, author of the uh, ten-volume Malazan Book of the Fallen and um, a few other books. Uh, so, writing epic fantasy uh, primarily, but some science fiction. Evan. Hi, my name is Evan Winter. I'm the author of The Rage of Dragons and The Fires of Vengeance. So I have now written two more books than I ever thought I'd get the chance to write. So that's kind of fun. And uh, I'm really excited to be on the panel with all of these incredible human beings. Awesome. Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Kwong. I wrote the Popular Trilogy, which just concluded this past November. And I'm at work on an alternate history book that was due 15 days ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 15 days. That's so cool. Yeah, sweet, isn't it? <laughs> Pete? Uh, hi, I'm Peter V. Brett, author of the Demon Cycle series from Delray Books. Um, the original series is five books and is complete and binge ready. Um, there will be a, another book uh, set in the same world coming out later this year, uh, The Desert Prince, which is due for release in August. Awesome. Devin? Uh, hi, I'm Devin Madsen, coming to you from Australia, where it is very early in the morning. So that's why I look like I just rolled out of bed, because I literally did. Uh, I wrote uh, We Ride the Storm um, and uh, We Live Death, which just came out in uh, January. And the uh, fourth book of that is due in 15 days. So <laughs> I'm in a similar place to Rebecca. <laughs> I going to go. <laughs> well, uh, just first off, thank you all so much for, for being here. And, and Devin, I'm so sorry I caught you at such an early hour. <laughs> I just always tend to do that. So uh, it's just going to be norm now. Um, so kind of want to, to start off with our first discussion question. Um, what do you see as the future of fantasy? I mean, we've been through Tolkien. We've been through the sort of farm boy becomes a hero. Uh, the very epic fantasy a la, you know, Martin and Sanderson, just as examples. Uh, you've, we've been going through a kind of a grimdark age here recently and other very dark themed storylines. You know, what what do you believe is next and, and why? Uh, Evan, I want to start with you. Wow. OK, so just uh, sum up the panel in a, in a couple sentences is basically what we're going for. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> the future. That's fine. No worries. I, I can go wrong. That, I, think. <laughs> I think that uh, hmm, I think that we do see um, publishing um, being willing, much more willing than it has in the past to explore uh, uh, explore stories from people who don't 
typically get to tell stories, at least through the big five. Um, so I think that's a very positive thing because one of the reasons I personally love fantasy is that I'm trying to understand the overall human condition through a lens that maybe is a little fantastical and uh, and that sort of shows me a world that I might not otherwise be exposed to. So it's it's always very exciting for me to be taken to uh, new places, uh, to, to, to hear stories from a tradition that maybe is not primarily just sort of the Western tradition. So I think that we will be exposed to more of that, to, to uh, more stories that don't specifically follow that Western tradition. But at the same time, um, I am hopeful, but also looking at the way that history tends to have gone, I think that the impressions of how much will change, uh, the general impression is probably is probably is overstated, and that things will still kind of remain roughly as they have been. We'll just get a little bit more sort of penetration for a, a few new voices. So I'm hopeful, but still a little cynical, maybe I guess. <laughs> Rebecca, same question. Yeah, I'm of the same opinion that there seems like a lot of visibility for a small number of new voices. And just thinking about like Asian-inspired fantasy, in the early 2000s, you just like could not find any Asian-inspired fantasy by Asian authors on bookshelves, period, right? And then Ken Liu in 2015 with Grace H. Kings changed all of that. And I think the Poppy War was the next like major adult fantasy about Asia by a big five publisher. And that wasn't until 2018. And in this coming year, we have a lot more than um, you know, one per every three years. I'm particularly excited about Shelley Parker Chance. She became the Sun, which is, uh, I believe, a Ming Dynasty inspired epic um, in the tone of Cersei, which is a mashup that I'm really excited for. Um, but I just, yeah, I mean, not to be a downer, like right off the bat, but even though it seems like from an awards perspective and from like a hype perspective, there's a lot more works by diverse authors coming out that. New York Times op-ed that came out a couple weeks ago was really sobering when we saw that like still the vast majority of books being published are by white authors. So I think the future of fantasy is really going to look like a lot more of the same color-wise, um, with, you know, notable exceptions. Yeah. Pete, Steve, any, any thoughts? Um, <laughs> Were you going to speak, speak, Steve, please? No, go ahead. Uh, I mean, just building on what Evan and Rebecca have said, I, I, I think that they're right. I think the ship of publishing is slow to turn. Uh, there has absolutely been a lot of like ground level effort amongst acquiring editors to, to diversify their lists. And that is going to have a trickle effect on the industry. Um, not as big as it may seem, as Evan said, but it will be there. And I think that for me, and, and look, this I'm a guy who, who started his career with a farm boy becomes a hero fantasy. So uh, it's, you know, take that as you will. But like, I've gotten tired a lot of a lot of that really Western sort of same setting fantasy myself. And what I have discovered is that when I want something different, now those things are available. Maybe they're not as like, maybe there aren't as many authors doing it as, as we would like to see. And, and certainly it's nothing close to a balance. But I have the options to read, you know, uh, uh, Tasha Suri or, or, or Rebecca or, or you know, Alina Boyden or you know, like there, there, there are, uh, those options weren't even there when I was reading fantasy, like uh, as a younger reader. And so 
it's become what I prefer to read because it's so different from what I write and from what I've gotten used to reading. Um, so the, the change, there is, a, there is a change happening, but it is, of course, as with all things, happening slowly. Um, but I don't think that, you know, the kind of fantasy that I uh, grew up reading is going to go away. And I don't think that there are going to be, you know, like, I don't think that this uh, is going to change the fundamental nature of what fantasy does, which is to, uh, again, as Evan said, like, you know, give you sort of like a safe lens to explore different feelings and different cultural ideas and things while still being separate enough from the real world that you can sort of draw a, a line between how you feel emotionally about politics in our world and how you feel emotionally about politics in like this other world whatever i've rambled long enough steve um i guess i my instinct is to sort of um step back and just sort of talk about the relationship between um fantastic fiction and the real world um and you know, I, over the years, I've seen you know we, we've seen the rise of what's now called grim dark. Um, and only recently, I saw somebody posting something about uh, what's coming out of that, which they called grim hope. Um, and I guess my sense always, with especially with fantasy, but I, I mean all fiction, but we as writers, we're in in dialogue with the real world around us. Um, and so each book is is it's kind of like uh, just a window in, into a particular time or a particular year. Um, and I think what happens in in fantasy, uh, and this is probably where the rise of grimdark came about, um, is the stresses and pressures of the real world, um, the senses of despair, um, uh, poverty, all the rest. They, they they squeeze through and they, they appear in the in into the fantasy world that's being created uh, by the author and so in a sense even though we're writing fantasy we're always commenting about the real world and the, you know where we are uh, in our lives um, and so if if there is a sense now that uh, fantasy is now sort of broadening its its um, source material um, and its uh, its inspirations then I guess um, that's a source of great optimism because it means that that you know the real world is is actually starting to sort of shake off some of those um, strictures and uh, very very specific uh, culturally specific um, Eurocentric if you want to call it uh, predispositions um, within the publishing genre. Um, so in that respect. Uh, Grim Hope, I think, might be sort of the next step, um, just to move away from uh, the nihilism of, of Grimdark and to um, <clears throat> find something else, uh, something a little bit more hopeful. And and I think fantasy will always be that kind of um, through a prism uh, reflection of what's going on in the real world at any one time. And um, it may seem like there's a lag, like there's, you know, we're kind of behind the times, but I think in many respects, um, fantasy may actually may get there in terms of commenting on the real world before any other genre. Um, and I don't know if that's true, but that's just my sense of things. So yeah. I'll throw that out there. Hmm. Devin, your thoughts? 
You muted yourself again. <laughs> Apart from agreeing with what everybody else has said, I, I um, have definitely noticed particularly the shift towards more uh, hopeful narratives because I feel that, um, you know, we, we have enough grimness in our lives these days that uh, once, you know, when, when Grimdark was really big and, you know, there was still enough kind of day-to-day -day, uh, solidity of our, our foundation of our lives and now we don't feel like we have that. So we need more in our reading than we had then. So I feel like that's a definite shift I've noticed and I imagine will continue because I can't see the world uh, becoming more sensible anytime soon. So I think that one is is a definite uh, shift into the future that there will be more more hopeful stories, less uh, maybe slightly less in the way of like conflict um, and wars. Um, but also I think a lot more ways um, in which especially the newer voices that come to fantasy are examining the like imperial and colonialist narratives that that one I, I think is going to continue, which is a, a really great uh, change from all of these stories that have been very much about conquering. Um, you know, I think the survival um, aspect will become more of a, a uh, an aspect of the story. Yeah, uh, kind of comment on a few things. So as far as the, the, the I guess the shift to, to Grim Cooper, uh, Ed McDonald put it Grim Heart. Uh, that there's there is redemption somewhere in there, uh, but we've had a couple of panels this week on uh, you know, anti-heroes and morally gray characters, and then we had a grimdark panel just before this one. Uh, but I've noticed a, a shift in all these authors that have been writing grimdark say, for the past five or ten years have find it have found it very difficult to do so, uh, given what we're living through right now. Um, they find it very difficult to, to look down at a page and write something so dark uh, because they're living through it. Um, and so I, I think that may be that kind of shift toward a grim hope or a, uh, or more of a, and it may even redo a trend that we had before uh, where everybody's just looking more for the light than really the dark. Um, and then as far as getting diverse voices and I feel like, there are so many books out there that have been published here recently, uh, but they're from smaller uh, pieces of the big, you know, big four, big five. Uh, you know, your tour.com, your orbit, uh, Harper Voyager, stuff like that. It's, it's, it's unfortunately, cause it's not going to be like front and center on a shelf. You're still going to have your Martins and your Sanderson's and Rothfuss and, and so forth that are going to really take up your fantasy shelves. Uh, at a brick and mortar store. Granted, who knows how much longer those things really have. Because I was talking on another panel about how I'd go into the horror section. And it's just all Stephen King. Uh, that's literally the horror section. Um, it's one author. And uh, I just feel like that that hurts trying to gain new readers from, from maybe a, a, an older readership that still goes to brick and mortar stores to buy physical books instead of buying them online where you, know, you can go buy a debut novel and then you get all of those other people bought this thing, you know, this, this book because they bought this one. Um, I think that helps a little bit, but it's just not, not enough. Um, so what do you think is going to be the best way to start really 
besides awards uh, and so forth, what is going to be the best way to get those diverse, diverse voices out into the world and out in front of readers outside of bloggers and you know, the publishers promoting as much as they can? Anybody can take that on. Okay, let's um, just solve publishing. That's no problem. <laughs> so I just think it's just say Orbit is like a smaller imprint because they publish in King Jemison. And yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I mean, you know, they're not, they're not a big four. They're a part of the big four is what I mean. Um, yeah, they're, they're a smaller imprint than just saying HarperCollins or Penguin Random House. You know, that's what, that's what I meant. But, you know, I, I feel, I feel like they're huge because of who they, who they publish, but they're just not, I don't, I don't know exactly. They're not going to hit the bestseller list. Uh, kind of like, uh, or would they? Uh, I mean, there's plenty of Orbit books have hit the bestseller list, so I, 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 I don't know. We're we're splitting hairs there. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that that like your emotional state as a person definitely affects both. I think your reading and your writing. Um, I and, and as an example, I Rebecca, I'm sorry, I had to pause uh, the Burning God during the. Uh, uh, capital crisis and and like the two weeks after until the inauguration because it was just too stressful to listen to while I was also stressed about the real world. So, um, and I think that that filters down into your writing, doesn't it? I, I think that it, it, when I look back over my career and look at all the books that I've written, just by looking at the book, I can remember the emotional space I was in at the time I was writing it. I was like, oh, you know, like that was my first book and I was so scared about what people were going to think about it. And like, oh, that was right after September 11th. And like, oh, that was when my child was born. And like, oh, you know, like that was when I had relationship problems. And like, you can see how these things, like even when they don't affect the plot of the book itself, those emotions filter their way into the flavor of the story. Um, and so I do think that that is going to have a profound effect on like the writing people did in 2020. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I, I can't solve publishing for you. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't asking you to. <laughs> um, um, good. Solving publishing kind of requires solving the world, really, because, you know, a lot of the reason why you see all the same books on the bookshelves is because the bookstores need to make enough money to be, you know, so it's like nobody wants to take a risk. So, right. you know, we have more of a safety net um, under us in order to take more of a risk and push the things that we find important, not just will sell. Um, it's not really actually going to change very much at all. So I think we need to solve an awful lot of uh, social problems before we can ever expect publishing to be truly um, diverse uh, in, in any way. I think there was a point made on a panel yesterday about how, um, and kind of, kind of going back to the, my, my Stephen King, uh, comment that, you know, it publishers need that big name in order to continue taking in newer voices. I mean, uh, Evan, I think that was on our, I want to say that was on our history panel yesterday, but, um, is that, you know, with that being said, I mean, you know, is it, do you, do you appreciate seeing those big names still out there just so more people can become published? And do you feel that that's the only way that that can happen uh, with, with, you know, 
they, they make all that money from those books going automatically number one. Um, you know, is that the only way that we can get more voices in? Um, I guess uh, from my perspective, I think uh, publishing only tended to become that way. I, I think there was a New York Times article about this as well in the in the seventies. Um, they started to become more about trying to create and generate hits, and having that sort of helped uh, support the mid list. But um, an odd little an odd little fact about me is that in university, I decided I saw a stage hypnotist, and I go, I thought to myself, that's incredible, and I want to learn how to do that. So I went to the library and learned everything I could about stage hypnosis at university, and I read all the books I could. And one of the main points that came out of that that I think actually is uh, applicable to almost anything is that expectation creates effect and that the expectation in this case from the publishing industry is most often that these types of books do well and so they search out those audiences they know how to speak to market and get uh, you know reach out to these certain type of audience and so when they publish a book and that's and they have a core audience in mind that they think of as the general reading audience yeah they can reach out to them uh, make books visible to them and have those books get bought and feels if they're and then have them succeed um, so you have to, I think, you know, a part of it is that publishing has to expand its understanding of, of who the audiences are, uh, because people of all stripes and kinds and everything read books. They have to expand that knowledge base, expand how they can reach out to them, and they have to break the expectation that a certain book by a certain type of author can't sell. Oftentimes, they'll pick up a book, maybe by a black author writing epic fantasy, uh, just for example, um, and they may say, well, we expect that it can do this much, and so they'll support it to do this much, and then when it does that much, you know, expectation creates effect. You have to believe in a project enough to give it to, you know, to come out guns blazing to really have a chance of having it explode. Um, so, but uh, I, I tend to really think about um, a book being able to be pushed, uh, relying on its a book's ability to become visible in the over sort of reader's consciousness, and that requires marketing and public relations primarily, from my from my perspective. Hmm. Yeah, and that I think that you've hit the problem pretty much right on the head there is that you have a marketing department that only knows how to speak, how to, how to market directly to, to certain specific groups of people. And when they want to expand that group, they got, that's where they really struggle. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, like superheroes are for boys. So therefore like, you know, any like, superhero like like group of action figures like it's all boys or there's like one girl and it's rare and then like the girls don't want to play with it because they don't have you know an entry point and then you create this bubble that has become a self-fulfilling prophecy like we're just selling the boys now because we've we've eliminated the possibility that we can sell elsewhere and so i i have seen a lot of books that i thought were going to be huge successes because they were different from everything else that was out there and they were so well done and, and seen them not do well because the publishers don't know how to market them because the marketing departments are used to like having little boxes to put their individual projects into. And when something doesn't fit in the box, they really struggle to, to get that information out there so that the audience who would read it knows it exists. Yeah. I don't know if it's, um, if it's, uh, still the case but my understanding early on when i was getting uh, first published was your advance is equal to the budget of the book's uh, publicity so if you got an advance of like three thousand pounds um that was it for publicity um <clears throat> so obviously the bigger the advance the more publicity um the book receives or the author receives which kind of you know, it sets, it, it puts 
new writer new writers at a disadvantage immediately because um, unless they unless they sign a very big deal which can happen um, but it's pretty rare um, then uh, they're going to have to do a lot of the, the publicity and PR themselves and that's been my sense over the years is that the expectation on what the writer has to do to publicize their own work is is growing um, it's a higher expectation than it used to be. Uh, I don't know, Peter, you did some book tours through your publishers? You did? Yeah, I've toured, yeah. I've toured for every book except the first one. It doesn't happen very often anymore, does it? It doesn't. And and, yeah. and to be honest, like I, when I do the math in my head, you know, I'll say like, well, all right, there were 50 people at that event last night, but how much was the hotel and how much did oh, yeah. it cost to fly me here? And then like, I had to take a taxi and I'm gonna need to eat. And, and, and so like, obviously I didn't make that money from those 50 book sales and the 50 people that showed up probably were gonna buy the book anyway. So what you're creating is this sort of like ephemeral, like these people had a direct interaction with me we got to look each other in the eye and create like a like a vibe and hopefully that means they'll tell their friends about the books and that will create some sort of thing down the road but like how do you measure that and how do you decide if that was the best use of your marketing budget i i don't know um yeah I don't where, know where it's is. now online you can look you can look your fan in the eye right so it has changed you know i, I mean my last well, no, I did a, a book tour in France, which lasted a month. It was like virtually every small town um, and every city in France. But I think that was a bit unusual. The, the one I remembered from tour across the States, um, I felt guilty through the entire thing. It was like 10 cities and we were flying back and forth in order to, to sort of get um, uh, into the bookstores that, that had the you know, the, the window uh, to, to get my stuff in there. And it must have cost thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I was just, I just felt terrible, right? Because sometimes there'd be 25 people in the audience. Um, and then I'd be flying across the country the next day uh, for the same kind of crowd and then flying back, you know, two days later. Um, so there was no, there was no sort of logic or sense to, to the pattern in which we were moving around. And it must have just cost a freaking fortune. And I don't know whether it was effective or not, but you know, with with the with the internet, it, it's it's much more. Uh, we are much more accessible, um, and and I think the expectation among the publishing houses now is, well, if you want you know your book to get big, you you better get out there and you better pound the pavement, um, if even if only um, electronically. So. Comments? <clears throat> I guess not. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I kind of felt the uh, that, you know, the or I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of authors that you know, social media can be difficult, and promoting yourself can be difficult. Um, you know, it's nice to traditionally published that you have a publisher in a marketing department that's kind of behind you. But like you were saying, yeah, it. it does it balance out with, you know, doing book tours or conventions or so forth? I mean, do you, do you think we'll move more toward an online type environment, kind of like this convention? Um, because I mean, I know we've already had a couple of conventions that have 
been canceled and who knows about future dates uh, for them. Uh, I mean, is this, is this a format that we would go to? Uh, I've, I've heard there's, uh, I think the Bard's Isle does uh, kind of, kind of just like book signings where you can kind of have a face-to-face interaction via camera uh, and get like a signed book plate for a book. I mean, is that kind of where you think we're going? Anybody feel free to answer. <laughs> All right, I'm just letting anyone else have a chance to talk because I don't want to ramble too much. Rebecca, um, but I, I think I think that this type of convention is not going away. I think that there's a lot of people who live in places where they don't have access to the major bookstores near an international airport or near a major airport that, that would host these sorts of events, or people who just don't like a crowd or don't or, or you know like like. Uh, have other uh, reasons why going to a bookstore and sitting in a crowd is just not for them, um, who are able to access events virtually. So I don't think that this aspect is going to go away, but I also think that there, you know, and I, I started building my fan base online, you know, from the very beginning, you know, uh, and I think that a large part of my fan base that I've built is because of online interactions directly between me and them. But that said there's nothing yet that i've felt that that is equal to like looking somebody in the eye in real life and like just have even if it's just two minutes with them while they're at the head of the line to sort of like have a real exchange like that that is something that you just it's so much harder to get virtually than it is like when you can shake someone's hand you know back when we did that right <laughs> Rebecca, thoughts? Yeah, I think we're going to move to a hybrid model um, because, I mean, online events are have been really awesome, I think, and make authors a lot more accessible to people who otherwise couldn't go to book readings in person. But um, I'm just, I'm wondering how to deal with the problem of like launch events specifically or launch tours, right, that are all online because they are just not as effective. Yeah. Even by a fraction, like um, I I was doing like launch panels and things for other people before The Burning God came out and uh, we chatted to the booksellers before the panel happened and they were like, yeah, sell-through is just awful. We basically just put on this event for free because the tickets are free, but most people come and watch and maybe like 2 or 3% end up buying a book, which, because like the social dynamic is so different if you go see an author in person because then like the books are right there on the stand and then you want to buy them and you want to have something to hold and to flip through and you know, the author's signing afterwards and you want something for them to sign. So like in-person events like move a lot of stock but there's just no incentive to buy a hardcover um, just to see somebody talk. So I think like right around November, bookstores started shifting their models a little bit so that the price of admission um, had to include the book. So for my two launch events, like you couldn't come watch unless you um, had also bought the hardcover, which meant that my audiences were like a third of the size as the launch events that I've been like co-hosting earlier. But it didn't mean that we were now suddenly moving stock that was commensurate to the amount that I would have sold in like a full in-person bookstore, which is nice. But it it's like it's there's also an expectation of a much larger audience when you're doing live streaming. So it's like weird, right, to talk to a Zoom room of like only 30 people. Like it feels like you failed somehow. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this. These are just like some behind scenes, like observations on how online events have been going. Um, 
Yeah, uh, look, you know, you also feel like you failed when you fly across the country and there's 20 people at your events. Um, You know, like, uh, I I do think that um, ticket events, ticketed events are are probably going to go up for just this reason, even if you can't expect someone to buy the book uh, necessarily from that particular store to view an event, you can say, you know, like a few dollars for a ticket makes people feel committed, makes them more likely to keep that commitment, makes them, you know, like, and and they feel like, okay, I paid something, I'm going to get something for my money. Whereas when it's a free event, and then like, you know, you can watch it later on YouTube or whatever, there's less incentive to do that. I think in Europe, they've shifted to the ticketed event model pretty effectively, where people don't think much about going to a bookstore and paying three euros or whatever to get into a signing event. Um, because then they don't have to have the guilt of like, well, I already own all your books and I'm just here to get them signed, you know, or, or like I pre-ordered it and I got it long before the bookstore had it. Like they can still go to the event, feel like they're contributing and like not have the guilt. Um, I think in America, we have not made that jump yet where people still expect these things to be free and are sort of resentful when they're not. Um, but I don't know how to cross that bridge. Devin, any thoughts? Um, oh, I think that the hybrid model is definitely most likely where we're going. Uh, and I think that's great because, you know, we do love our in-person comms because of just the ability to get together, you know, especially as authors and industry professionals, we, we don't really do that we're all so solitary all the time you know writing out things sitting in our offices so the ability to hang out and actually stand and talk to other people that are your essentially your co-workers you know so this is our you know water cooler is is going to a con so i think um you know that's that's not going to go away but i do love this um even though it was a kind of a forced shift into uh, virtual events um, because it's really useful to those people, um, authors and uh, readers alike, who just cannot get to in-person events. You know, like even just from Australia, which is you know nowhere near as inaccessible as you know a lot of other places in the world. Uh, you know, getting getting to anything that is you know in the U.S. and the U.K. is just like it's a twenty-four hour flight. It's expensive. It's really hard. And we have, you know, less people in Australia than the entire just New York City. So, you know, our, our actual local scene is is tiny and um, really spread out. So it's like, okay, well, this actually allows me to be involved. You know, I could never have sat on a panel with, uh, you know, this group of people in the other situation. And, and so that, I think, is really exciting. Uh- Stephen Aaron asks, we're going to kind of go back to the, the future of fantasy, but do you think more stories involving the environmental impact of people will become prevalent in the future, like given COVID, climate change, et cetera? Um, Stephen, we'll talk. We'll, we'll start with you. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I started writing about the environmental impact of people in 1990, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, in the last book of the fall in the 10 volume series is it is about colonialism it is about imperialism um uh, it's an anthropological take on things but um 
I guess so. I mean, it, it, it's environmental impacts going to be playing a role, um, whether we like it or not. Um, and maybe that aspect uh, will start sort of appearing in some form or another uh, in fantasy fiction, where um, that sense of agency, which is so central to uh, epic fantasy, is taken away from the individual, and, and the environment becomes um, a major player uh, in, in story form, storytelling. That's certainly possible. Um, I, I, it's hard to predict where things are going to head in terms of um, <clears throat> how we're going to filter through our real life experiences um, and how that sort of shows up in our fantasy. Um, I, I guess it just I, depends. I don't have it. I hear, I hear a child, yes? Sorry. <laughs> no, that's cool, that was cool. There we go, the voice of the future right there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, you're good. Anybody else? Um, I, I mean, certainly there have been SF books dealing with these topics forever. I, you know, Paolo Bacigalupi 10 years ago wrote Water Knife, you know, like, and, and like there, you can go back way further than that. Um, I think a lot, certainly in the kind of fantasy that I read, a lot of these things are, are the result of industry though. And not all fantasy books have the level of industry that would have that kind of environmental impact, you know, unless you got that in, impact from magic in some way or, or something like that. Um, the global pandemics are a result of a mix of transportation, uh, the ability to, to transport yourself uh, from place to place and go through ports, but also um, humans encroaching into parts of the natural world where we haven't been before, um, again, which is a result of, of overpopulation and, and industry. And so, um, there's certainly plenty of room in fantasy to explore that because you can explore just about anything in fantasy. But I think a lot of fantasy books don't have that level yet. Um, I guess Evan's books explore that a little bit. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but you know, certainly the the dragons have an impact on the environment around them, and that causes all sorts of political problems that, in many ways, reflect you know a distorted version of the real world. Um, and I guess Rebecca's books. Uh, all right, it's already there. <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I feel like you know what, it's already there. Um, Anybody else? I guess I want to say on the COVID part of that question. Maybe it's just me, but I just like I never want to read a COVID-inspired novel. I actually thought it was kind of funny that we haven't seen like big splashy book deals about like my pandemic experience. And, and maybe it's just because like we're all exhausted and none of us want to read that. But I'd be like perfectly happy if like there was no blockbuster release next year that was about COVID. You know there's going to be a movie though. Well, I mean, like, all of those like pandemic movies that were trending like early on in quarantine, I was just like, who the hell wants to watch Outbreak right now? Like, <laughs> you're not going to learn anything from it. It's just going to like create an echo chamber for your stress. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Evan, Evan kind of touched on this earlier, but do you believe that 
uh, you know, trends over the years, I mean, trends always end up repeating themselves, but especially in fantasy, do you think they're going to end up repeating themselves just continually? Do you think some will die off or, you know, will, will there be new ones that replace them? That was for you, I think. A minute. <laughs> oh, no, that was at me? Okay. I was just going to sit here and listen. Um, yeah, yeah, let's go for it. Okay, here we go. No. <laughs> um, but in terms of trends, I think that we probably are going to see um, a lot of things that sort of cycle through. I think that's almost unavoidable. Things come into vogue, fall out of vogue, come back into vogue. I think that what uh, what I would hope is, uh, is stops being treated as, as if it is just another trend is... Um, that we get to see other voices and other story traditions and story styles breaking into publishing and being read. Because that to me is not a trend, that is just called progress. Um, and so, yeah, whether we go back to farm, uh, you know, farm boy uh, doing something and whatever, whether we go back to, you know, more sort of standard ideas of orcs and elves or something for a period, maybe that can happen. But, you know, uh, the thing that I, I really do hope is not a trend is just seeing more stories from more people from more places about more things. Devin, Rebecca, Pete? <laughs> or did Devin just mic drop and nobody wants to answer? <laughs> yeah, I, just, I feel like I'm doing all the talking, so I want other people to talk. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we'll go to the next one. Uh, is there anything in the genre you feel is overdone and needs to be done away with? No. <laughs> Was that a question? <laughs> Bit of a difficult question because it's kind of like just you know we all have our personal preferences of what we like to read and what we don't like to read but the thing that we don't like is the thing that somebody else loves so i feel like you know to to say that something is overdone and needs to be done away with is is a bit too um you know kind of what do they call it yucking on someone's yum like it's it's like you know we should we should just all kind of you know I, I think we should continue to accept like we want more new uh, things to come into the genre because we do have too much of a reliance on you know our old themes and voices. Um, but I don't think there is anything specific that we should be like, no, let's not do this anymore. Except for you know like old things that because of progress we need to move away from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I know there was a panel yesterday that, that was, you know, like well, I really want to write a story about elves and orcs, and then you know, you always hear the "There's already so many books about that, right? Something new kind of thing." That that's kind of that's kind of what I was getting at. With I wasn't trying to go too deep with it. <laughs> there's, already, there's already so many books about humans. Why do we keep writing books about humans? We should stop that. I know, but don't they say write what you're familiar with? <laughs> I don't know. This this is the thing. Any anytime someone says that you should stop doing something, you can immediately point to an author who does it so well that it's great. And so, you know, well, that's just it. You take it as a challenge, right? That you know, somebody says, you know, every every version of the elf has been written. Well, I mean, an author would take that as a challenge. To, to mm -hmm. actually sit down and actually create something new out of um, that old tired cliche, and and that you know that's where that's where great stuff you know comes from. It's, it comes from that that new take on things. Um, so I would say any any you know particular 
subject, if you will, is, is game as long as the, you know, the author is, is prepared to, to go for it and um, explore it and dismantle it and reconstruct it and do whatever they want with it. Um, and then it's down to, you know, did it work? Well, it's up to the readers to decide, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, new voices and diverse uh, or diversity in fantasy. Uh, who are some some writers maybe over the past couple of years that uh, you've really enjoyed that that you know maybe aren't the more mainstream? I guess you could say like like uh, you know mine for example you know came from Tor.com. Uh, it would be P. J. Lee Clark's Ring Shell. Uh, it's a short novella, but it's fantasy, but it also has a very uh, alternate history twist to it, and I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, another one, uh, and Evan, I mentioned this one in the panel yesterday was, is the unbroken by CL Clark. It's, it's amazing. And it's something I've never seen before. Uh, it's not your, you know, your, the typical fantasy novel that's, that's sitting on the bookshelf, but who, who are maybe some writers or just some book titles that y'all have read, uh, maybe recently that, that you think are kind of pushing the boundaries. Uh, Evan, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, thanks. Um, I'm going to jump right in and say N.K. Jemison in the fifth season, and I'm going to say that because at the time when I first read read it, um, I was surprised by a lot of the actions that the protagonists took because they are not easy choices. They are not like I am the standard traditional good person, like the the hero of the story. That's not the way that's constructed. And at first, I kind of like was like, "Whoa, this is this is challenging me in an interesting way because how how can I root for this person? How can I go along for the journey?" And then as I read and read, I realized that a large a large part of what is, I, 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 at least for me, what I felt I got out of that book was the idea that sometimes a hero or sometimes, sometimes progress is only made, sometimes society is only changed when people go in there and really tear down what was to sort of start over a little bit and create something that's new. I think that so often we're meant to believe in incremental progress. We're meant to believe that, you know, if we all just get along and, 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 and you know, do the thing, it'll all work out for the best. But power doesn't seed itself. It almost never does. And I think that one of the most interesting things is that N.K. Jemison got me to see that in a way I hadn't really seen before, at least in my in my sort of limited readings. Uh, so I found that very exciting and it's, uh, it's influenced the way I think about uh, storytelling and also even revolution in fantasy, so. Um, I'm scrolling through my recently read audiobooks. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my, my really, uh, so I, I feel like um, Stealing Thunder by Alina Boyden uh, came out this year during the pandemic when the bookstores were all closed. Um, I loved that book when I read it as an arc. You know, I, I can't think of any other trans female author in epic fantasy from a big five publisher right now. I, I don't know that one exists or like an unabashedly trans female uh, uh, lead. Um, I read that book. I adored it. I really expected it to, to like um, do very well. And then it came out uh, in May like when all of the bookstores were closed and when like the, the industry was still sort of scrambling on how to rejigger things to um, make things work online and, and 
do publicity online and things like that. And so I feel like it never really got a fair shake, but I really like that book and I think that uh, it's worth reading. And so if you're looking for something uh, new and different, uh, I think that that is a, a good option. Um, and the sequel is about to come out. So like it'd be well-timed as well. I'm also reading The Burning God right now and it's, it's, uh, it's very stressful. Let's just say that. <laughs> Devin, any? Yeah, I don't know. The um, pandemic has made uh, reading very, very slow for me. So I'm pretty much only getting through Ox at this point. Um, uh, but in terms of things that are going to come out soon, uh, I have to say, um, so Tabitha's series, The Jasmine Throne, uh, so I read that uh, in its earlier uh, iteration, and I don't think I had ever read something where I could so confidently say these characters feel so real um, that no aspect of their their messiness, their 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 kind of true, you know, human psyche was was kind of shielded away away from the reader, you know, like so often I feel like in stories we are kind of pushed towards liking or disliking particular characters just by the way uh, an author writes about them. Um, whereas uh, what Tasha has done in this book has just given us these people in like their, their beautiful raw form. Um, and it is just honestly astounding to read. And I, I hope everybody will pick up a copy of that one. It was just wonderful. Rebecca? Yeah, I'm also really struggling to read fantasy novels right now. Like, I just don't have the focus for it. I can't do it. The book I'm currently reading is just this, like, long stream of consciousness, like, musing of this piano virtuoso over his dead friend, which is um, my, you know, I don't, I, I picked it up because it's only, like, 150 pages. Um, and fantasy books are very long. So my recs are going to be books that I haven't finished reading, but which are coming out this year um, and which I think will be good. Um, so first, I'm seconding the Jasmine Throne. Um, and Tasha Suri's first duology, um, Empire Stand and Realm of Ash, was just incredible. Shortlisted for a bunch of awards. Um, so I assume that she's only getting better. Um, and second, Isabel Yap's Never Have I Ever, which is a speculative short story collection coming out in a couple months. Um, and they're heavily inspired by Filipino mythology. And yeah, I've, I've read like four stories and they've all been wonderful. So I assume the rest will be good too. Awesome. Steve? Um, I tend not to actually read much fantasy these days. Uh, so I read science fiction, nonfiction. Uh, I'm terrible with titles, but two authors that came to mind. I like Becky Chambers a lot, um, and uh, Cameron Hurley's um, latest, I think, SF novel. Uh, that was a knockout. So uh, that's the kind of stuff I'm reading right now. All right. Um, got a question from Arena. Do you feel science fiction and fantasy can shape society's future, and is there any way to try? Or you try to craft that into your writing? No. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe and no. I think like like certainly like if there is a fantasy series 
that is so widely read by a whole generation, it can certainly affect, uh, you know, I, I think Harry Potter had an effect for better or worse on a generation. I think that there are other, you know, the Hunger Games and, and, and other things like that can influence so many younger readers that like it has an effect on their outlook on certain things. But I, I don't know that you can craft that into your writing in a way, you know, like, like I'm not gonna, I'm, I don't read it. I don't write like I'm going to influence the kids by like, you know, giving my <laughs> secretly working my manifesto into my books. Um, I think that if you try and do that, it will, people will pick up on it pretty clearly. Um, and so, uh, I don't know. I, I, it feels hubristic to, to think about fantasy writing like that. It's entertainment. I, I mean, it, it can have a real message to it, and it can make you think about things. But it's in the end, it's still entertainment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It went through a really big crisis of confidence in the value of literature um, a couple months ago because, like, we always like like to say platitudes about how like yeah. fiction makes us more empathetic, it makes yeah. us care about people who don't look like us, etc. Um, but that just seems not to be true. And I think the reason why it's not true is because when bad people read fiction, they never see themselves as the bad guys. They Their internal logic is already warped enough so that they like find reasons to sympathize with the good guy and imagine the people that they hate as the bad guy. And like like one really basic example of this is that like the most dominant um, trope in like American pop culture since World War II has been the Nazis are the evil people, right? Like Captain America is about fighting Nazis. Like anytime you need like an, an easy bogeyman in an action film, you always throw in some Nazis. and. Like, oh, we literally still have Nazis. So it just, I, I don't know. So I was really convinced that literature just like doesn't do anything, that, that it is all just entertainment, that we, like, that there is no point in hoping that I could change someone's mind and make somebody's life better. Um, so it was a better place thinking about putting writing. Um, but then I had a really good conversation with Tochi Oniyabuchi, who's um, novella right baby is just incredible but he made the point that sometimes it's not changing it's not about changing the mind of the opposition it's about preaching to your own choir um gave the example of right like a black kid who picks up right baby and sees themselves and what they're going through reflected in a piece of fiction perhaps for the first time like and the unimaginable things that does for you and um, how you perceive yourself in society, like the community you might find, the inspiration and hope you might find. Um, and that's the attitude I'm going to take towards my fiction right now. I don't really think I can change the minds of racists or bigots, right? But I think I can change the minds of, of people who are inclined to pick up my book in the first place. Well put. I like that. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I, mean, I do think that, that racism and bigotry are learned. And so, you know, the I, I think that's one of the reasons why, like, YA and mid-grade Twitter is such a cutthroat uh, place because people realize that, like, that's the time to shape minds. And um, when you're writing adult fiction, like, people come in with all of their baggage 
with them and they interpret your books based on the baggage they already have. Um, it's different when you have a younger market because then you can make things accessible in a way before those uh, belief systems fully take shape. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to deny that literature has an effect, but I also don't want to overstate that effect because you're right. You know, like how many years of Captain America fighting Nazis did we need like for that to sink in? And so when you see like someone walking around with a Captain America shield while storming the Capitol, like maybe it didn't really do as much as we thought it did. Um, hmm. Yeah. I guess uh, for, for me, I think that I very much value the power of literature and storytelling. I think that almost all of society tends to be built on the ideas of the stories and the myths that we that we create. Uh, you know, back in the ancient days, it was the gods and the idea of, uh, of the idea, I think, I'm going to start, I'm going to back up a bit and just say, I think story helps shape our concepts of what is normal, what is the default, what is acceptable, what our ideals are, what our priorities are. And so for me, very, very much, I do think that stories can can adjust how people view some of those things. Now, that said, um, as as I, I'm definitely in line with Rebecca and that you're not going to switch, you're not going to flip somebody from uh, one very specific worldview to another. But if you speak to people who share your general worldview, we can ask, we can learn to ask different questions. We can learn to ask more piercing questions. We can approach something that changes the way that we try to tackle real world issues. So for me, storytelling really is, I'm gonna sound so cheesy saying this, it really is magic. Like it has a really powerful potential to create and generate change and adjust the baseline where people think society is either heading or where it currently sits. That's, that's my honest feeling about that. Evan, you're allowed to be cheesy. It's fine. It's so sweet. That was so sweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so the question I want to ask, I, I know a couple of you may have, you know, and I know, I know Steve's written some science fiction, um, but is there a genre outside of fantasy? Because I, I, my assumption is everybody looks at you guys as, as fantasy authors. Uh, but is there another genre that you would like to write in, but just have chosen not to yet, or maybe have written something and just not gotten it published? Or are you just sticking with fantasy because it's what you know, just out of curiosity? Um, Steve, I'll start with you. <laughs> well, sure. There's lots of other stuff I'd like to write, um, but I'm under contract to produce one, two, three, three more novels um, and a novella or well, three novellas. So I just, I mean, when, yeah. when am I going to get time for this? I don't know. But yeah, it'd be nice to, you know, clear these out of the way and, and still have some energy left to produce something else, but we'll see. Pete. I'm writing exactly what I want to be writing. If I wanted to be writing something else, I would be writing that. Um, I don't, I think that stories are, are, if you can tell a story, you can tell a story in most genres. Um, so it, you write what you want to be writing. Um, so I, I'm not like longing to write Westerns and feeling like I'm stuck in a fantasy contract. It's just, you know, write a fantasy I, book I want to write and then I write. Yeah, there you go, write a fantasy Western. <laughs> well, I'm watching, I'm rewatching Firefly right now, which is like the fantasy Western of my dreams or the science fiction Western of my dreams. Well, so of course, Mandalorian. Mandalorian is basically every Western film 
you know, ever made. Yeah. It, so. And Star Wars is fantasy, not science fiction. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> You're gonna offend some people. Gotta throw that bomb. And then <laughs> Rebecca. I think we always end up writing what we're enjoying reading at the moment, and I'm ready to say goodbye to epic fantasy for now. Um, the Papa Book trilogy is done. I'm doing an alternate history with some magic next, and then I want to do a contemporary thriller, but I'm under contract for another speculative fiction novel, and I have no idea what it's going to be about, so who knows what will happen with that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm at a really early stage in my career where everything seems very attractive, and I want to try dipping my toes in a lot of genres. And, Evan? Gotta smack that uh, mute button there. Um, yeah, I am <laughs> I am very happy with where I get to be right now. But again, I've I've only written two books. So what do I know? <laughs> it all feels very shiny, new, and fun. So I'm I, I love this genre. I grew up reading it, and uh, it is a literal dream come true to be able to sit here and try and create and live in the worlds that uh, are so similar to the ones I read growing up. So yeah. Good for now. Center of Fantasy Western. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that uh, you know, I'm on board. That's great. <laughs> Devin. Uh, oh, I'm a little bit like Rebecca in that, like, I, I have that desire to kind of try, you know, dipping my toe in lots of different places. Uh, but at the moment, I I write my epic fantasy, and I also uh, write a bunch of uh, romance when I feel like I need to uh, change things up a little bit. Got a bit heavy sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. So, and, and Re Rebecca may not like this because I know a lot of people uh, said that her series was YA, uh, and I know it really isn't. It's so not. <laughs> but oh my god, is it not? Do you feel that? that YA is still dominating in dominating right now in fantasy. And is that trend going to continue? Do you feel that people again, wrongly perceive things as YA uh, because they do. <laughs> and uh, do you think that, um, you know, has that changed your thoughts on what you're going to write next? Would you, would you write to a younger audience or would you stay with an adult audience? I don't know that YA has ever dominated fantasy. That's just like a weird presupposition to me. I think though that, I mean, the tail end of your question gets at like market pressures, but I think there is this like great myth that YA is where all the money is and YA is like where it's easy to strike goals and make a lot of um, cash like writing fantasy. But that's I feel like that's just never been true. Right, especially after 2008 and after the bubble, like after the YA bubble popped, where people stopped like spending millions on debuts because they thought they had the next Divergent or Hunger Games, etc. Like YA is in a lot of ways uh, a harder market than uh, adult fiction. Um, certainly, like more books are sold in adult fiction because, like numerically, they're more adults. Um, so yeah, I mean, I might write a YA in the future if that's the kind of story that I want to tell. But I think they're just like it's not a lot of merit to discussing whether there are more opportunities or whether there's more money to be made in YA. I think that's been debunked um, for a while now. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people look automatically when you have a young character as your protagonist they're going oh it's why 
I, th- I think a, lo- a lot of readers look at it that way, and it's unfortunately not. I mean, you know, you look at, again, the Bobby War, you look at Red Rising, uh, stuff like that, and everybody goes, oh, there's a young protagonist, so it's got to be young adult, right? And then you realize very quickly how dark it gets, and there's no way that's written for a young audience. Um, and I think that's I think that's where where people get the confusion. And again, I think it also comes down with fantasy subgenres like grimdark. Everybody thinks because there's a lot of murders or deaths in a book, it's automatically grimdark, or you know, it, it, the list goes on. Um, but again, but the, the, the same question to anybody else, uh, Evan, Devin, y'all have any thoughts? Oh, I think. Uh... <laughs> People tend to get lumped onto YA styles uh, often just because they're female authors, you know. Like I've I've seen a photo of uh, Anna Stevens' book on a children's shelf because there's a picture of the wolf on the cover and it was written by a woman. Um, I don't think kids should be reading those. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) That's going to be an eye-opening experience for sure. Gotcha. Um, Pete, sound like you had something? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there were uh, Rebecca's right. There, there were there were a few big YA fantasy hits that made it seem like they were dominating the market, but I don't know that they ever really did. Um, and I, I think deliberately trying to write YA when that's not really where your head is at because you think that that's a quicker path to success is always going to end in failure. You know. Um, anytime you try and chase the market against your own creative instincts, like you're setting yourself up for, for failure. You, in the end, you still have to write what it is you love and what you want to write. Um, but we also just need to remember that, that to a large extent, like subgenre is bullshit. And like, it's very easy to, to slap a label onto, you know, like people were calling my books grimdark for years because Grimdark was in at the time that I started writing. And, and I admit like there are some dark stuff in my books, but I think my books were always much more hopeful than, than anything that you would cite as an example of Grimdark. Um, but people just like saying that because they like putting things in small boxes and then trying to force things they don't know what to do with into one of those boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so but when I'm writing, I don't really think like, what are the rules of epic fantasy? I need to stay within those rules. Like, I just, I just write what I want to write, and then like let somebody else slap a label onto it if they want to. But mm-hmm. I, I think that even with YA, like Pierce Brown is marketed to a YA audience quite frequently. Those books are incredibly violent and and have a lot of you know like more complex things to it. But same with the Hunger Games. You know, like the whole premise of the Hunger Games is kids murdering each other. So like you know like the, the YA audience is is much more capable to read dark stuff than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also like the reason the Hunger Games was so successful outside of YA is because it also has a lot of adult content and a lot of adult themes. So I, I, I just feel like every time we try and slap these little mini labels onto things, we're just putting ourselves in a box for no reason. Yeah, I agree. It shows how out of the loop I am. I had no idea that Red Rising was considered YA. Um, that, I, I just picked it up you know, in a bookstore. Well, there's no, there's no on, on the page sex. And I think that for a lot of people, uh-huh. that's the that's the dividing line between. That's the line. So you can murder is like because literally millions of people die 
yes. in the Red Rising books. That's Especially fine. in Dark Age. Especially in Dark Age. It's so dark. <laughs> yeah. it's, perfect, it's perfectly fine to kill all you want, but if you make people, then, you know, then you're <laughs> If you procreate, that's the line. Okay. Yeah. Got it. We, we have solved it. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, uh, I want to go ahead and, uh, and kind of just move into our, our, our last segment. Um, I want to ask everybody, what do you have going on right now? Uh, do you have a new release coming out, recent release? Uh, do you just have something that's maybe, you know, in the future, maybe into 2021, 2022? And then for people who maybe have never read anything by you, where is the best place to start? Uh, and Steve, I'll start with you. Um. I'm finishing up a, a trilogy that I started some time back. Um, and I, I really uh, have a huge aversion to not finishing um, a series I start. So this is the only one that's been hanging over me uh, for a few years. So uh, Walk and Shadow is the third Carcanus book. And that's what I'm writing right now. Um, as for where to dive in, um, well, I have some, uh, novellas that are set in the Malazan world. So that's that's fairly short stuff. Um, and those might be might be a nice uh, or fairly easy approach. But at the same time, those are, are, are satires and, and dark comedy. So a little bit different from the main, you know, the main series. I don't know. Um, if you want a 10 book series, you know, on compassion and, and um, and then start with Gardens of the Moon. It's the first one of the, the ten book series. Okay. Evan? Um, I'm currently working on book three of uh, The Burning Quartet, which is uh, the series that I'm currently working on because it's the only series I'm currently working on. Uh, an entry point to my series is The Rage of Dragons because that is the only book one that I have. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, if you're into uh, if you're into that kind of thing, somebody who's still working on finishing off a series but uh, hopes to be able to complete it, then please start with Rage of Dragons. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's so good. It really is. It really is. Rebecca? I have one trilogy out. It starts with The Poppy War, and I'm now working on a book that is best described as Jonathan Strange and Mr. Neural Meets the Secret History. Um, and that will be out in August 2022, but we can't say anything more about it because they're being very cagey and not letting me like publicly announce anything. But I think if one day I just like stealth announce the title on Twitter, then I would not have to fight with anybody over what the title is or get approval, so I might just do that. <laughs> but not <Sorry>. <laughs> You need to leak it to the press. Yeah. <laughs> Pete? Uh, I... My Demon Cycle series is complete with five books. The first book is The Warded Man, or if you're in the UK, The Painted Man. Um, that book is pretty standalone. You could just read that one book and not read the others, because um, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. So if you want to stamp on my work, it's also the shortest one. Um, if you like that, there's a, there's a larger series, and it's done. Um, currently, uh, my next book, The, the Desert Prince, comes out August, the week of August 3rd this year. Um, it is also set in the Demon Cycle world, but it's 15 years after the end of the last series and has a new cast. So uh, you can read the new series without having read the old series. 
you can read the old series and stop at the fifth book and not go on to read this new series. Or if you want, you can think of it as one big thing. Um, but I, I worked very hard to make this new book one a standalone as well, so that people don't feel obliged to have read my previous books to enjoy this. Um, it's the most ambitious book I've ever written. And I am today, I feel confident about it. Uh, we'll see how that changes as days go by. Devin. Well, okay. Well, I uh, just had the second book of my quartet come out in January. So the best place to start with that one is uh, We Ride the Storm. Um, but like uh, Pete, I also have a prequel trilogy that's set in the same world with a slightly different cast. And I made sure that you didn't have to have read that one before, um, but you can. You know, you can read them in either order. Um, so you can either start at We Ride the Storm or The Blood of Whispers. Uh, I'm currently working on the fourth book, and the third one comes out in August. Awesome. By the way, I love the shirt. I just I just realized that after an hour <laughs> minutes of your of your hashtag typo shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my hashtag typo shirt. Yeah, from the, uh, the uh, typo that was the fourth word of the uh, UK edition of my debut novel. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, I want to thank everybody that tuned in and I especially want to thank my panelists for, for taking time out of the day to come and chat about the future of fantasy. Um, I think we know where it's going, but we'll see. It's <laughs> but just, uh, but just thank y'all so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with all of y'all and thank everybody for their questions. Uh, sorry if we didn't get to answer some of them, but really appreciate y'all being here. Uh, and then stay tuned for the, Last, well, the last of today, uh, the Spiffbo panel uh, coming up in just about 45 minutes. And then our last panel tomorrow with our live D&D session. Uh, and that'll be the last day of TV Archon. So um, just really appreciate everybody that's been sticking with us since Monday. Um, and look for us again next year. So uh, thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.